Hello and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, where we try to take a look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators in our industry. I'm David Thorpe, contributing editor at Asset Allocator. And joining me today is James Mee, co-head of multi-asset strategies at Waverton. James, thank you for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. I suppose, James, we should start with the topic that is on everyone's mind right now, inflation, and whether that's from looking at your uh, investment portfolio or looking at your energy bill. You work, I know, on a variety of mandates at Waverton. How are you, how are you thinking about inflation in the short term and medium term across different portfolios? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's exactly the way to phrase the question, the short and the medium term. I think there are two uh, you know, periods of time you need to think about it. The consensus at the moment really is is that this cyclical or short term, as you phrase it, inflation is going to be transitory. Um, and, you know, one is extrapolating a 40-year secular decline in inflation. So we've had a disinflationary trend for, for you know, at least 30, if not 40 years. And we can say the same for rates as well. And there are some very good reasons for this. So um, one is the level of debt that we have in the system um, now, usually, if you start from low levels of debt, when you take on debt, that can be inflationary. It can be can have an inflationary impulse um, to prices as people go out and spend or invest or whatever it might be. Once you get past a certain point, call it 90, 100 percent of debt to GDP, if we're talking about government debt, for example, that then becomes disinflationary. So, so that that speaks to this disinflationary trend or continuation of we've we've already pulled forward demand we've already spent that money we've already seen that inflationary impulse. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, that's called um, fiscal drag, is that right, James? Yeah, that's that, that's correct, exactly. But you've you've spent the money already, effectively. Um, uh, you know, you have interest payments which you now have to pay on a high level of debt that is crowding out other spending. That's crowding out other investment. Of course, you have the principal payment which looms large. You will. If you take out $100 of debt, you will have to pay that back at the end of the term. Um, and so what you do clearly is you save more, you spend less to ensure that you can pay that $100 back. So that becomes disinflationary you know, after a certain point. Uh, the second is digitalization. We've seen a pretty relentless trend, uh, you know, courtesy of Moore's Law, um, of increased computing power. We've seen input costs um, as a result of this come down materially, productivity improve materially, higher productivity tends to mean, uh, you know, you get more out of your workers, you can pay them less, in theory. Um, we're seeing a shift to the cloud. And, and as I say, it's pretty relentless, and we expect that to continue. A third one, which has become a bit of a question mark, actually, until pretty recently, demographics um, was thought to be disinflationary. So as we have an aging demographic, for example, as you see in Japan, uh, and as we are going through at the moment, China's uh, China's um, working population actually peaked two years ago, interestingly. Um, as you retire, you spend less. Um, so the expectation, and, and so that clearly has a disinflationary impact. The velocity of money declines, that is disinflationary for prices. Um, the theory's changed somewhat, or, or, or certainly is being challenged. And, and the suggestion is that as people retire, there is a reduction in the number of workers in the labor force and so that ought to push up uh, it reduces the supply of labor which ought to push up uh, price of labor so that's a bit of a question mark sure. i'd say there th- th- there are some good reasons to challenge that perspective that secular decline and a continuation of one is a horrible phrase but but quite descriptive which is deglobalization 
deglobalization globalization has had an inherently disinflationary force with uh, or, or impact rather um, as we've outsourced labor uh, to other parts of the world uh, and so on really deglobalization actually began um, over 10 years ago interestingly what we've seen over the last couple of years so the pandemic really highlighted the risk of just-in-time inventory management systems you know and brought forward quote unquote just in case should we have should we be near shoring should we be onshoring should we be again quote unquote uh, friend shoring and then russia clearly has intensified this um, uh, and it's heightened energy security concerns and that then speaks in part to another challenge which is the outlook for investment and the outlook for capex more generally and there are a few potentially secular themes that we might be at the foothills of one is an, the energy transition, very well broadcast, I think probably well understood and discussed, um, but that will require investment in renewable infrastructure, amongst others. Energy security, I've already mentioned, that's important. You know, friend shoring being what everyone's talking about at the moment, but near shoring, ensuring you're, you're not reliant on, for example, a Russia. Defense spend, relatedly, we think commodity production, you've seen very little uh, capex in commodity uh, in the commodity world, be that oil and gas, be that metals and mining for at least the last decade, if not longer. Uh, and that is part of the reason we have constrained supply and part of the reason we have uh, commodity prices rallying to the extent that they are. Uh, and then finally, that you know, there's, that there is some possibility that there is a recognition of the poor health of infrastructure in a lot of developed markets, but actually, interestingly, particularly in the US, there is the potential for, you know, an increase in spend uh, from that perspective. And, and then the final challenge to that structural downtrend that we can see is uh, interest rates. Um, and rates have been in a, in a secular decline uh, alongside inflation. And another is tax. Taxes have been declining globally uh, for the last 40 years, and we think may well have bottomed. Janet Yellen um, you know, proposed uh, a global minimum tax rate, I think, last year or perhaps the year before. Um, you know, and we think that she's pushing on an open door. So there are a few reasons, um, you know, to challenge that structural view, we'd say. Uh, James, that's that's uh, very, very interesting and, and very thorough. Thank you very much. Um, one of the things that I noticed uh, is that among the suite of products on which you work at Waverton is a, a fund with a defensive, cautious outlook. Given the highly unusual circumstances in which we are, we are living now, what does a defensive portfolio look like? What's a defensive asset class? Government bonds are, are I suppose, supposed to be uh, defensive, but uh, guilds have, have lost quite a lot this year, as have, have most conventional T-bills in the US. Um, so how does one think defensively, given the uncertainty uh, that, that that is out there? Yeah, yeah. So, so when we think about the macro environment, what we try to do is think about alternative realities. We think about three or four or five uh, what we call frameworks as to what the world might look like 12 months, three years hence. Um, and we sort of tilt the portfolio towards what we think is most probable. In terms of what that framework is today, we think that the the war in Ukraine sadly continues. We think that probably supports commodity prices, but we think in and of itself doesn't actually result in higher or meaningfully higher commodity prices from here. You know, we think that the commodity price rises that we've seen already are beginning to be demand destructive, both from a consumer goods perspective, uh, but also within industry. And you're seeing that in the PMI numbers coming out more recently, both principally goods, but also in services. 
so we think the commodity prices are going to be thereabouts flat to down probably next 12 months. Um, and, and so think about the impact of that on inflation, clearly. We think also more optimistically that China actually comes out of this period of, of lockdown. It's going to remain a zero COVID country, we think certainly through the end of this year, but they start to loosen uh, lockdown policy. That will have an impact on supply chains, that will have an impact on freight rates, it will have an impact on, on volumes actually shipped. Uh, and we think that there might be some policy easing at the margin for China. So we think that there's going to be decline in global demand in aggregate, uh, but we also think that there is going to be a decline in the inflation rate, um, which, which can be supportive for a number of risk assets uh, and otherwise. We think as we go through this year that we're going to have weak to choppy risk assets, particularly as we go through the summer, Q2, Q3, um, and, and hopefully the potential to improve in Q4 as uh, what we said about China in particular improves. And this aligns quite closely with what we've seen in terms of historic market behavior in years of a midterm election, for example. So how are we positioned? We came into the year fairly defensively positioned, having, having you know, run risk assets and equities in particular at a relatively high weight uh, through the last 18 months or so from, from sort of mid 2020 onwards. And, and just to put some numbers on that, I think at, at the trough, we were running a 40% 42% equity position, uh, you know, in, in Q1 2020. Um, as we come through to the end of last year, we were running in the mid 50s at so 54, 55% in equities. And then and then today we're running something in the region of 46, 47% in equities. So it gives you some perspective okay. of where we're sitting and today. What's the, what's the fixed income allocation like? So fixed income is principally short duration credit. Um, we do have treasury, US treasuries and UK gilts in the portfolio, and they're there really as a ballast. We don't see them as a store of value, certainly not in a high and rising inflationary environment. But in periods of acute market stress, they can and often do um, perform a hedging role. We actually, thinking about the background we have today and the inflation setup that we have, you know, what are we thinking in terms of defensive investing well if we're trying to defend against inflation we're really thinking about equities and we're thinking about real assets in particular and we have a 20 odd 20 22 percent allocation within the fund you mentioned the multi-asset income fund to real assets so property infrastructure commodities specialist lending uh, and asset finance we also and I, I might just mention that as as when uh, you know we're worried about acute market risk and drawdown protection which is one of our, our key philosophies we also specifically hedge the portfolio. So we're not totally reliant on a government bond to be negatively correlated with risk assets. We will also use um, options-based structures uh, to hedge the most deleterious outcomes. And, and, and we use those through Q1 2020, Q4 2018, Q1 this year, uh, and they've been to the benefit of the capital of the fund. One of the features of markets uh, this year to date has been the relative strength of the, the dollar against almost any other currency. We could do almost an entire podcast on the reasons for that. It could be something as uh, prosaic as Fed tightening at a faster pace should be pushing currency values up. It could be the dollar is a safe haven. It could be commodities are trading dollars. There's all sorts of reasons. But really what, I, what I'd love to unpack with you now, James, is what impact do, do currency movements and your expectations around currencies have on your portfolio construction and asset allocation? Very good question. Totally agree. I mean, the dollar has been extremely strong, and I think for exactly the reasons you suggest, one other is the relative strength of the US economy 
to Europe, for example, which is in war or very close to war, Japan, Chinese proximity, uh, very tied into the supply chain issues, not just from China, but more globally. UK, we have a cost of living crisis. I think there is a perception that the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve, the US central bank is more willing to raise rates um, faster and further than other central banks are either willing to or able. And those relative rate expectations really, as far as we can see, have been the real driver of what's happened now currencies have moved a very long way to price this uh, so sterling dollar for example and that has been to come back to the second part of your question what's the impact on the portfolio if you are a global investor like we are and multi-asset income fund for example we were talking about we have between 40 and 50 percent in sterling the remainder is a non-sterling allocation so be that in equities or in bonds or in alternatives when the currency that you own those securities in rises relative to your own currency, to sterling, that again is to the benefit of the fund and actually can be quite quite helpful in being defensive uh, in periods of stress, particularly with the dollar, usually with the yen as well. We think the risk today to us and to our investors is, is that actually it goes the other way, that sterling starts to appreciate quite meaningfully. Um, and that's primarily based on the fact that markets, as I say, have moved a very long way. They've 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 really priced in the rate expectations differentials, uh, and so you could well see a surprise hawkishness, for example, from from the the Bank of England. You could see similarly from the ECB, although arguably they're already some way down that that track. And that that leads us, I think, to uh, to something that, that brings together a few of your 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 remarks, which is around uh, commodity exposure. Uh, you, you mentioned in, in, in your earlier remarks that sort of real assets are, are a part of of, of what you're, you're interested in. Um, commodities have done well. It's very easy to see why they could keep doing well in an inflationary environment, but volatility is, is notoriously high and any number of macro events could happen in a different way to consensus expectations and commodity prices could fall. But so how do you think about when you're allocating across different portfolios? How do you think about exposure and where they are in the risk curve? Yeah, so perhaps I could talk, we have a real assets fund as well. So perhaps I could talk to that. Commodities form part of our real assets allocation and they are today as high an allocation as they have been. Now you mentioned earlier that commodities have performed very well, but in an extremely volatile fashion. So you need to uh, balance the risk with the potential returns from the allocation. The, the the allocation within real assets is eight to ten percent currently of commodities x gold and we we have been proponents of gold and hold a five percent weight in gold as things stand today within the real assets fund so that gives you some idea of of 100 allocation we're holding 10 to 15 percent whether you include precious metals or not thinking about commodities going forward the beneficiaries of the rise in commodity prices really have been those companies that produce them uh, whose revenues have gone up, but the costs have not gone up significantly, i.e. they're not spending as much on CapEx this year. And so the free cash flow has just been extraordinary over the course of the last 12 months. And we've just seen Shell report this morning. I think if we're thinking further out into the future, and if we're right that we're at the foothills of a, of a, of a rising CapEx environment across the commodity complex, then really you want to be looking further down the value chain because CapEx is a cost to these businesses. And so we'll reduce the level of free cash flow in the short to medium term. We want to be looking really at companies that provide services into um, oil and gas, metals and mining companies for their production, if that makes sense. 
Indeed, indeed. So, um, thank you. And how, how do you get that exposure to commodities? Is it by buying the equity of commodity companies or through ETFs or, or some other uh, instrument? Uh, it's both, actually. So we, we will invest in commodities via the ETC. We can and do within some of the absolute return strategies that we run, uh, position long short positions within that uh, and, and do it as a structured note and some of that might be structured as a hedge uh, and as well as you mentioned within equities we also uh, can and do invest in um, corporate credit of companies that, that, that are involved in that. James Mee, co-head of multi-asset investing at Waverton, thank you very much for your time and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.